0: You're listening to an event from the US Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: Thank you all for joining us today. In partnership with Humanity United, the US Institute of Peace is pleased to welcome everyone to this important conversation on justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion in peace building. I am Joseph Sani, Vice President for Africa at the U.S. Institute of Peace. The U.S. Institute of Peace is a national nonpartisan independent institute founded by Congress to help prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. USIP works with government, the private sector, civil society to build local capacities to manage conflict peacefully and to reduce future crisis and the need for costly interventions. USIP works in unique ways, incorporating both think and do functions in the research, training, application, learning, and policy cycle, and direct action to support a broad range of institutions, organizations, and stakeholders who are working to build a more peaceful and inclusive world. These networks have multiple benefits. They drive these efforts in their own countries and give depth. To the institute analysis, policy recommendations and programs. Justice, diversity, equity and inclusion are foundational to the work that USIP does and we are glad to host this timely conversation. JDI efforts in most peace building institutions have focused on reforming organizations to make them fully inclusive and anti-discriminative. This efforts, rightly so, have targeted human resource processes, work processes, decision-making, and culture. The current assumption driving the conversation on GDI is that if peace-building organizations are just, diversified, equitable, and inclusive, this organization will then design and implement more inclusive, equitable, and just programs, policy, and impact. However, this assumption may not always be valid because as we know, there are some funding mechanisms bureaucratic procedures, social cultural dynamics, and political interest that may not prioritize, promote, or respect the principles of JDI. Therefore, focusing on the field or the system of peace building and the entirety of stakeholders outside one's organization becomes so critical. The system is important here not just one organization. There is an urgent need for the field of peace building to act with a level of purpose and intent that matches this express commitment to GDI. This focus on the field or the system of peace building will entail excavating and dismantling and colonial legacy, power imbalance, and ideologies that undermine the foundation and the goals of the field of peace building. Doing so will require us all to engage and reframe the conversation surrounding JDI peace building and tackle head on the myriads of predicaments peace builders face that impact the practice, institutions, and communities. It also means addressing important questions. For example, what does JDI mean for conflict resolution processes, such as negotiation, mediation, peacekeeping, peacemaking, good offices? How can JDI increase the effectiveness of peace-building interventions and support the agency and power of local peace building actors within the broader peace and security system. These are some of the questions that our panelists will tackle today. I want to extend my gratitude to our distinguished panelists who will discuss these difficult questions and issues. We hope that today's discussion will enrich a broader conversation that leads to substantial changes to allow the field of peace building to fulfill its promises we invite all of you to take in today's discussion by asking a question using the chat box function located just below the video player on the USIP event page and join the conversation on twitter with hashtag jdi number 4 peace I will now turn to Mr. Keinde Tugu, Managing Director of Public Engagement at Humanity United, to introduce our panel and moderate the conversation. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Sari. Uh, and thank you for your partnership and for your leadership on this topic as well. Um, and thank you to all of our panelists who are here today. Um, I also want to acknowledge Search for Common Ground, Mercy Corps, and Women of Color Advance in Peace and Security who in partnership with USIP and HU have been uh, holding these conversations for the last year to talk about how do we address our internal challenges um, as well as how do we uh, spur the action within the peace building field at large. Uh, so this conversation today is taking place against that backdrop and with hopes that we can uh, continue to spur this common on this uh, conversation and this important topic forward. Uh, and thank you to our panelists who are here. Um, I'm very grateful to have you all join us today. Uh, Ariel Eckblatt is the Deputy Assistant Secretary at the State Department's Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. Melanie Greenberg, <coughs> excuse me, is my colleague uh, and managing director of peacebuilding at Humanity United. Dina Esposito is the Vice President for Technical Leadership at Mercy Corps. And Scott Taylor is a professor and vice dean at Georgetown School, vice dean of DEI at Georgetown School of Foreign Service. Hello, and thank you all for joining us. Uh, And to all of you watching at home, thank you for being here as well, or in your offices uh, in the agrid (laughs) world that we now live in. Uh, And so I think, I wanted to begin, I should also mention, uh, just to sign this earlier point, uh, if you're watching on USIP's page then, uh, please use the Q&A function. Um, our colleague, Kai Stuckey, uh, is gonna be uh, watching that page and helping us get questions uh, so that we can uh, make sure we incorporate them into the uh, conversation later on. Snani so has provided an excellent framing for us, and I would just add that these VIJ conversations are also happening uh, in a parallel but separate conversation around decolonization um, and around the decentering of uh, Western institutions and Western actors, right, and centering the voices of those most. Closest to conflict, uh, so I think that's sort of an additional separate but additional context uh, for today's conversation and for many of these conversations that we're having. Um, and to get us started, I wonder if I may ask you all to reflect on your roles as leaders, as government officials, um, as uh, leaders in society, leaders in academic institutions, um, and also leaders in philanthropy. Um, and so my first question is, uh, how have each of your respective sectors begin to move toward accompaniment by centering those closest to conflict? and the issues that we are all seeking to address and i'll begin with um area uh since you're right in front of
0: me right now
3: gladly i will gladly um join in here well before i just dive in i want to thank Kende and Humanity United and USIP and Sani for for convening this conversation. I know this is sort of um, one of many ongoing conversations that are happening about this really critical topic. And still, I'm immensely grateful every time I get to join one of these spaces because this is, you know, in my estimation, this is frontier work. Uh, I would be remiss if I suggested that I knew exactly what I was doing. And if you all do, and kudos, please send me all your notes. But I think we're all learning, right? Embedding equity, inclusion, justice, and diversity is not easy. We don't necessarily have consensus around the need. We don't have consensus around the definitions. And so figuring out what it is and how we do it necessitates a certain amount of, um, I think, grace and humility um, and a certain amount of um, calling on the collective brilliance of all the humans who are willing to think about and do this work. So thank you first and foremost um, to for everyone for convening and for joining. So I think in response to your question, um, how has the USG um, begun to, to to center this work I will answer specifically from the perspective of the Bureau of conflict stabilization and operations and more specifically um, with my my work with the negotiation support unit that supports um, high-level ambassadors special envoys folks in the department as they engage in interne and international negotiations and also complex peace processes so I think one of the, the things that we've tried to really do is is um, embed equity questions and considerations into both the processes that we are thinking about and then making sure that that translates into the negotiated agreements that we are advocating for. Obviously, we have our own negotiation happening behind the table and within the building, but so there's no guarantee around what comes of our advice. But we, as a unit and as a bureau, are thinking about what it means to embed this this sort of intersectional framing in our processes and our negotiated agreements. And so, what does that often mean in practice? I think it means broadening who we think of when we are identifying the parties, right? Um, moving away from, I don't like the, the track language, but moving away from from sort of centering track one work and expanding that aperture to say, who, who who are the stakeholders who are most impacted? How might we center those people in process and in substance? What would that look like if we sort of flipped it on its head a bit? Um, I think another thing that we're doing is we're trying to undertake more comprehensive conflict analysis. There's some really brilliant work that's been done um, by our office, um, by SGW, our Office of, uh, for, for Gender Equity. And I think we have tried to take that and continue to build on it to see what would it look like to apply an intersectional co- approach to conflict analysis. I, I think another thing that we're trying to do is improve our understanding of the why behind this work. Why is it important to conflict resolution and stability, right? Like, what are the tangible effects that we can point to as we try to um, build consensus around the need for reimagining our approach to this work? And then, you know, another thing that the NSU, the Negotiation Support Unit, has done, I think, particularly well is try to set, set up mechanisms with the broader peacebuilding community of practice, because there are brilliant people thinking about this outside of the building. And we come with an immense amount of humility, right? There are a lot of people who are doing a lot of thinking around what this work looks like in practice, how we might do it better. And so we set up a negotiation support network whereby we've asked people in civil society, part of educational institutions, individual people who are just doing peacebuilding work and said, hey, do you have some thoughts around what this might look like? if we were to, again, embed equity in our processes and in our substantive outcomes. And so those are some of the things that we're working on. But I think I'll I'll again say um, it's fluid, it's changing, it's new. And so this, in my estimation, is just the beginning of what we can and should aspire to do.
2: Thank you for that. Uh, and I think your point about the equity and intersectional considerations in the process is an important one to, uh, as we're all thinking about how we bake these in uh, early on. Dina, um, can I turn to you uh, to respond next?
0: Thanks, Kahinde, I'm uh, really just delighted to be here and to be sharing with all of you and learning as we go. As, as Ariel said, it does take a lot of grace and humility uh, in the in this journey. We're all learning. I know when uh, I work with my team and we talk about the way who we are and how we show up for, for things and trying to sort of unpack all of that, they'll say, well, we're not experts. We, somebody else needs to come in and, and tell us what to do. And, and really, I think, the message that, that I, I'm hearing is you know, we all have work to do and we have to do it. There's no one else who's going to do it for us. So, really, thank you for, for pushing us and for all the, the collaboration that we have ongoing behind the scenes as we talk about our, our internal workings. For those of you who don't know Mercy Corps, we're a humanitarian development and peace building organization. We do have about 35 peace related programs ongoing in some of the most fragile and conflict affected places in the world. These are usually running alongside or integrated with our humanitarian and our development work. So my vantage point is very much from this sort of multi-mandate approach that that Mercy Corps takes. I think a first step towards accompaniment, and it is a, a basic one, but that's just in defining the problem statement. What is the problem you're seeking to address and I think Joseph said it well. You know, when we're talking about JDEI, we're talking about acknowledging that the business as usual ways of working have not delivered the results that we know are possible, the transformational change that we're all, we're all looking for, and improving and sustained improvements in well being outcomes, peace outcomes for the most poor and the most marginalized. So I think Mercy Corps and others I see in the sector are being much more explicit about the roots of colonialism and the power imbalances that flow from that, and why those are real obstacles that we need to grapple with. And that to do that, as Joseph says, we have to do self-reflection about what do we look like, and how does that translate into how we show up? So, Mercy Corps, we're in the process of finalizing a new global strategy. We have new leadership in the organization, and it's, uh, and we're we're launching a new strategy. And it will expressly note our belief in the ability of those at the center of these conflicts and crises, where we work, to determine their own solutions, and that their engagement, their solutions, will be more our help. To, to deliver with the those solutions as they identify them will be stronger and more sustainable as a result. And that strategy commits us to ensuring that their goals and aspirations are at the center of what we are doing, uh, are doing in, in collaboration with them. So I think once you name that, it, it it is a starting point and you have to truly hold that belief then the logic of seeding power, developing really true, more meaningful, sustained partnerships becomes much more urgent, much more obvious, and I think gives you the courage to move to that accompaniment stage kind of that you're, you're asking us about. So I would say those are very early stages, naming your intent, doing that deeper reflection on what partnerships look like and doing that deeper reflection about what the organization looks like and, and what our systems and structures are. So those are just some um, early thoughts. Thank you, Dina, and I
2: appreciate that transparency around the journey that you all are on and uh, which is what's gonna allow us to all hold you accountable to that uh, once the strategy and everything begins to be implemented. Uh, I wanna turn to Scott and then I'll, I'll close with Melanie uh, on this question.
4: Thank you, Kehinde. Um, and thanks all for having the opportunity to be here this morning with you. Uh, it's great to be on this panel. Uh, I feel a bit like an outlier as a representative of a, of a university and an educational institution that's not exactly involved in uh, the practice uh, of much of the work that you all are doing um, in the uh, the conflict space. Um, but but as a university, obviously we're involved in in training the the people who will come to work for your organization, the people who will populate um, uh, those spaces in the future, who will be ideally the global leaders in um, not only in not only within hopefully diverse institutions uh, that they represent, but in their in terms of training them to be able to uh, to see the roots of conflict, um, the linkages to issues of inclusion or exclusion um that that resonate so deeply in 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 so much of this work right um so you know we are uh as an educational institution you know and at georgetown we're still fairly new um certainly in the school of foreign services international affairs school um to to grapple with issues of you know we we refer to it as the deis but you know um I I always like the term Jedi better than the. But, you know, so we're working in the DEI space, but it's still fairly new. I mean, you know, this uh, my role as vice dean for diversity, equity, inclusion in the School of Art Services is just two years old. Um, And so, you know, um, much like uh, my colleagues have said, you know, we're we're all learning, right? We're learning how um, to to navigate in these spaces um, to try to improve, uh, you know, in terms of our, our scholarship, but our teaching and our own inclusion so that we can be representative institutions, um, again, to deal with uh, issues of diversity as they manifest in conflict situations around the world. And, you know, for that matter, in every other space. Um, so we're organized around, uh, you know, the three C's. So we, uh, around curricular reform, um, around a uh, uh, community in terms of making our community uh, more inclusive, both in terms of faculty and students. Uh, and, uh, you know, and last around uh, the climate, the kind of climate that we are presenting, the kind of inclusive climate we're trying to represent at Georgetown and in at the SFS. Um, so, you know, the the reflections then as an educational institution about centering those closest to conflict and centering issues of diversity equity and inclusion and justice um it is of course reflected in a lot of my colleagues scholarship already but we're you know through our ceo and curriculum we are trying very hard to expand that um to center those voices of of people who are um Uh, Not simply, uh, you know, uh, those who are kind of uh, the historical writers or scholars or uh, practitioners on on um, issues of conflict, but around the voices of of um, the victims, the people at the ground level, um, the people who have experienced it. Um, We're also trying to diversify and think about the kinds of people we bring to campus so that students can hear those voices directly. uh, but it's also not just about making those individuals the focal point, although I think that's that's really critically important. Um, we also are very deeply concerned with with notions of allyship of you know of principles of anti-racism and DEI uh, and inculcating those principles within the community. Uh, you know, again, so that our students, whether they're American or, or, or non-American, um, you know, those who are retraining, can can we can expect to be You know, um, sensitized to and solvers of the very conflicts that um, that motivate so much of your work. So that's that's kind of some of the things that we're doing um, in broad brush.
2: Thank you, Scott. And in, in many ways, you are the front line because the folks that we all receive are coming from you. So so that you guys can uh, train them the right way before they come to us uh, and help us diversify that pipeline, the better off we will all be. So um, that's thank you for being here and for uh, those interventions that you all are beginning uh, to make. Uh, Melanie, can I turn to you for the next?
5: Thank you, Kihinde, and thank you, Sani. and thank you to this working group that I think has Take such a powerful approach to uh, JDEI in the peace building space. Um, so I work at Humanity United, which is a small private foundation that focuses on cultivating the conditions for peace and freedom. And we have been on our own DEIJ journey, is how we use that acronym. But we feel, as Sonia suggested, that it is very much resonating with the broader trends around a colonization of aid, of peace building, and also of wealth and philanthropy. And I thought I could give a bit of an overview of what I'm seeing in the philanthropic sector uh, sector, and then to move more to what we're doing at Humanity United and within our peace building program. There has been a real soul searching in the philanthropic sector about what are the power dynamics behind wealth? and how, how is our stewardship of the funds of our founders related to deep questions of justice and equity? And frankly, are we doing harm? Um, are we perpetuating certain power relationships through our funding that really need to change in order to recognize the power of local peace builders? Um, so I think there are a few important trends here. The first is recognition that there is no such thing as American exceptionalism. I think this has been very important, especially for American and more generally for Western donors, that we need to come with a spirit of humility because the issues that we face at home in the US are very deeply related to issues around the world. And recognizing that we cannot come in, and I I really don't like the term white savior, But we can't come in with a sense that our slate is clean. Everyone else has tendencies towards conflict, that we really need to think about how are we, as a global community, addressing the root causes of violence. And at the same time, having a very different mindset around the resources and the communities in which we work. In the peace building field that I grew up in, And I have to say, I have a great sensitivity towards this as a white woman who's really grown up with the field, a sense of how have I perpetuated many of the stereotypes about what it means to to intervene in a conflict. And I think that I'm seeing a real mind shift say that communities in conflict have deep resources, traditions of conflict resolution, social capital to draw on. And that our goal as donors is not to come and pour in Western money to change those systems in a way that ignores those forms of capital, but to be deeply an accompaniment to help move those voices forward, to move those practices forward, so that we're not just giving lip service to the agency and power of local actors, but are drawing on the strengths of those communities. So coming into the mindset of positive peace and positivity, not that somehow these communities are lacking. For philanthropy and for donors, there's some very complicated legal mechanisms that get in the way. I think a large part of the DEIJ process is to start changing those and working around them. So how do we think about giving money to groups that don't look like standard NGOs? Um, How do we engage with movement leaders? How do we really take on the political realities that sometimes peacebuilding doesn't look like what, for example, the U.S. government might like to see? Uh, the New Humanitarian yesterday ran an article about how some communities, local communities in Mali are negotiating with um, Islamic militias um, in order to, uh, to obtain peace and to have a more secure day-to-day kind of life. Um, that's not the standard of peace building that we might often imagine, um, and yet it's very effective. And so how then, do we think about those local peace-building actors in relation to our own organization? Um, we're hypocritical if we are an all-white organization uh, without recognizing the challenges of diversity, of teams that bring really different experiences, that come from different ethnic groups, that come from different social backgrounds. And so aligning our own practices at HU, and I can speak later, we've, we've had a very deep Uh, DEI journey, how we're connecting how we look internally into this broader set of values around um, local peace building and the appreciation of diversity in our work.
2: Thank you, Melanie, and I really appreciate you talking about uh, the power and philanthropy power and pr- power and wealth and privilege within philanthropy and how that's a unique lens uh, to this and how that might sometimes hinder us if we're not approaching it the right way. So thank you for um, adding that framing as well, um, Melanie. Sorry, this uh, and uh, Dina, I wonder if I can talk to you, uh, turn to you next to talk about within the peace-building sector. Um, what are some of the promising practices uh, that you're beginning to see, uh, and also what are the, some specific challenges uh, that you all are seeing, uh, particularly as an institution that's seeking that is U.S. based, but also working across the globe. If uh, you can talk a bit about that, please.
0: Who goes first, Kehinde.
2: Uh Deanna, yours. Okay, all right,
0: thanks. Um, promising practices and challenges. Um, I think I'm gonna frame my remarks very much in line with um, the traditional Uh, Talking about the traditional donor structures, Melanie really challenges us to move outside of that framework. And I think there's a lot of work to be done there. But even within the traditional donor structures, there's there's efforts at change and um, also uh, challenges in, in actually delivering on the vision behind that change. Some of the really positive things that I see happening at USAID, for example, is the uh, localization initiative that Samantha Power has launched, as well as the new partnership initiative, which is um, a way of soliciting fund uh, pr- proposals that I, that require a national partner in a, in a country to be the lead, Or asks an international organization like Mercy Corps to transfer that program, that leadership to a national organization within the life of the program. And this is an experience we had recently in a design in Nigeria. We were flipping the leadership role on the program side halfway through between Mercy Corps and a national partner. The co creation process is um, something of a new construct within. Donor funding, USAID funding—it is an important step forward. There's actually a seat at the t- there's actually a table to sit at, which is the first uh, step. And then the question of who is at that table is is one that um, that uh, is, is uh, equally important. And there um, have been, I think, examples both good and challenging with with regard to the co creation process. And finally, I think um, also as an opportunity, we are certainly engaging in. Um, thinking not just about gender equity now, but gender equity and social inclusion. So we've done so much work over the years on gender, there's still much more to do, but there um, is this recognition that it's not just gender identity, but these other identities that and how they intersect that can create marginalization and differentiated needs and, and capacities. And I think that there's a lot of work to be done, but I think it's also uh, been quite, quite positive. Um, Within our own journey, I think both because of the, the power of the donors to shift thinking is very important, uh, but are also our own internal reflections. I think we're seeing much more inclusive design processes. We're asking much more intentional questions with our country teams about who we engage as we write. Uh, as we write proposals, and more interesting designs that are increasingly putting Mercy Corps in a mentorship or facilitation role. We're asking and challenging ourselves, if we're direct implementing, why is that, and should we should we be uh, before we commit to, to doing that? This is certainly the case in Mauritania and in Nigeria, where we have won two uh, awards recently. In Mauritania, we are doing a youth program that's focused on Pre- uh, preventing um the interest of youth to joining violent extremist groups and that is really supporting an entire network of local youth serving organizations as well as asking young people to conduct the initial assessments what are the youth needs what are the youth perceptions of needs what are the services and opportunities they are interested in youth are sitting on a variety of the project boards and are managing a youth fund All as a way of testing new ways of being more genuine about centering youth voices. Again, I'm sure we will will make mistakes as we go, and it's certainly it's an effort at at trying some some different things. And um, I would say, in terms of partnerships in in Liberia, uh, we recently um, issued a request for information through national media to solicit interest and capacity statements from civil society groups uh, across the organization. We got more than 150 um, uh, inputs from that that we're going through, but it's a, just a different way of thinking about partnership rather than going to usual suspects or um, relying on uh, on past relationships. So. Uh, Those are just a couple of uh, promising examples of trying to do things a little bit differently. In terms of challenges, um, I mentioned this, uh, this program in Nigeria where we're flipping the program leadership from Mercy Corps to a national organization halfway through. Our original intent was to transfer the entire grant uh, to their leadership where they would absorb not just the program leadership, but all of the fiduciary responsibilities and essentially become the prime grant holder um, with the donor. And that was just a bridge too far. You know, in the end, uh, the design is such that they will take on all program responsibilities, but Mercy Corps will retain all legal obligations as the prime in terms of financial risk, et cetera. So I think there's some more work to be done and you know, fully embracing the, the that agenda of localization and what it means. And um, those are, I think, the more conversations that have to be had. Likewise, in co-creation processes, sometimes national partners are invited, other times they're not, and it is um, an inconsistent message about what what that co-creation process is meant to be. And then finally, in terms of challenges, I would highlight language. We are um, having conversations with our our national staff about what makes our technical uh, support unit, which I lead, accessible to you and what makes it inaccessible. And language is, is a big one. It's It can be too technical, too jargony. And I think that's very true across the peace building sector and, and development in general, but also um, language, right? How much are we investing in translation? How often do we translate? How often do we have simultaneous translation? These are uh, things that Mercy Corps is investing in much more heavily, where we're committing to translating in four languages, all major documents, and all of our even day-to-day webinars um, being uh, much more intentional about simultaneous translation. So. Um, Those are just a few, uh, I think, promising practices maybe, or things we want to experiment and try to learn from alongside some challenges.
2: Thank you, Dina. Uh, And I appreciate also that there are challenges, there are legal challenges, the languages. These are all things that even if in our best efforts, uh, these are things that we'll have to grapple with. So the question is, how do we begin to uh, address those rather than see them as like, we can't do these, but they are as we, as we and go on this journey, there will be challenges on how do we address them as the real, uh, the real work to be done, right? Um, and Melanie, I wonder if you can just take a few minutes to also talk about the, those, some of those practices that you're seeing as some of those challenges. You began to tease this out in your last question. So if you don't mind, uh, just taking a, a minute or so to expound.
5: Sure, of course, thank you. Um, it's wonderful to talk about what we see working and some really exciting new VISTAs. Um, I would talk about different forms of learning Learning in the peacebuilding space has often been quite extractive and exploitative, and the the purpose for the learning is often for the benefit of the donor, for the Western partner, and not the kind of learning that our local or community partners would want. And so, um, practices like everyday peace indicators, where local communities are actually creating the metrics and the indicators of how they want to measure peace in their own communities, I think is very promising. And I've really seen a shift in our own work towards defining learning for what the communities need and how can we kind of provide uh, assistance and accompaniment in those learning processes. I think the connection with social movements is huge because it really gets to the part of how you shift power. And so what does it mean to be in supportive communities as they are moving towards new relationships with their own governments and own power structures? and how to think about those shifts. So we support a group of African coaches who are coaching movement leaders throughout the continent, very engaged in Sudan. Um, We find that accompanying youth cohorts, we have a group of youth leaders in South Sudan who themselves are imagining what a future could look like without the the ethnic divisions that they see, um, without the negative dynamics from the government, um, without the polarization. And so they're developing new ways of being with each other, new narratives, imagining a new future and being with them as they wrestle with um, issues of trauma, building different kind of relationships. The actual danger that they all face now in this highly violent uh, community. Uh, it feels like a different kind of accompaniment, a different kind of conversation with donors. Um, and finally, I think issues of narrative. I think that we're getting much more attuned um, to how people tell their stories and how those stories about communities envision conflict can then be woven um, into a larger tapestry to think about than what action could be taken. So, um, and finally, I think the focus on racial justice and equity in the US, Humanity United has a new program on racial justice um, and equity which looks both at deep engagement within communities in the U.S. and particularly with a group called Far Southeast Family Strengthening Collaborative here in Washington, and also on working with movement leaders to, um, on their well-being and their power as leaders. And we're seeing so many intersections with the work here in the U.S. with similar work abroad. And finding those connections, those translocal uh, peace-building contacts, I think has been extremely positive. Just talking about some challenges and maybe moving right now to the peace building field more generally, um, this field still defines its professionalism through degrees, through frameworks, through language. I think it's partially in response to, for so long peace was seen as a kind of fluffy, hippie, kind of 60s endeavor. And in our attempts to make it more powerful, to make it part of real political processes, we lead very much, I think, into some of this exclusive jargon and frameworks and there's a need now to walk that back and to understand the, the broad range of experience and people um, and democratization that we need in the field I think there's still a high degree of structural racism in the peace building field I would point you all towards a new report from peace direct that looks very specifically at what it means to decolonize peace building and the attitudes of Western intervention, moving into communities that um, are somehow more inherently conflictual than those we come from, which I think we now know is is a true myth. Um, there's still, I think, an informal old boy network within peacebuilding because there are no set career paths. We rely on unpaid internships, who you know, which college you went to. And if we truly want to reflect the diversity um, that we need in the field, we need to open up those networks, to think about ways to attract people to the field. Scott, I'd love your views and how we can do that better, um, how we make the transition from school into the field. Um, I think finally, there's not enough focus on the well-being of social justice leaders and peace builders. There's real burnout, real trauma. And how can we as a field be supporting the people who are on the
2: front lines of peace every day? Thank you, Melanie. Uh, I, there's a lot there. Uh, I'm gonna pick one in particular, uh, which is when you talk about the over-professionalization uh, of the peace-building field. Um, and several of our colleagues talk about the idea that everybody's a peace-builder, um, and so you don't have to go to university to study peace building to be a peace builder and i think that's a, an important frame that i often try to think about um and with that i'm going to use that to transition to scott and ask when you as an academic <laughs> vice dean uh, who's thinking of, of raising diplomats and uh, educating diplomats and educating practitioners um how do you help them think about and how do you evolve your practice uh, and your education systems to think to help them understand power and, stru- and these structures and how they might enter the space differently um than perhaps the when we were in graduate school going through this process.
4: Well, how has that evolved over time? Yeah, thanks. No, I I, well, there's been a tremendous amount of evolution, but it's been fairly recent, right? I mean, you know, it's not coincidental that my my position is only two years old and that if you look at, um, at least at, at APSIA schools, for example, the Association of Professional Schools of International Affairs, you know, our sort of peer group, lots of them are sort of recent recently acknowledging these spaces but um you know if i can uh, you know i mentioned the 3 c's that are sort of motivate our our work uh in my last comment um i could just you know two of those are are uh pertinent to your question about both the curriculum and the climate certainly um so i mean in terms of the curriculum it's it's about you know, I, 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 I love what Melanie was saying about, the, you know, this notion of sort of decolonizing and there's no such thing as American exceptionalism because that speaks to thinking very critically about who and what we are teaching students and how we are preparing them. Um, and it's not, and, and and this is often seen, right, as zero sum, as we're not kind of like America's if we're not centering U.S. interests in our, as an American institution, we are somehow um, negligent but it's about creating space i mean it's the it's the whole notion of inclusion in our cur- curriculum and in everything we do right that there are spaces for other voices sometimes they are opposed to those that center um uh, the us and that's that is to the benefit of you know of peace building and of uh, certainly of international affairs more broadly um so i mean so just in, we you know the, the schools that i mentioned it's not just georgetown that, are, that are, that's engaged in this kind of um Revisiting of, of of how we teach and what we teach uh, and engaging in in curricular reform, uh, which is difficult and uh, adding more and, and different kinds of electives, which is much easier. Um, in terms of the latter, you know, just to, there are a number of schools that are doing things like, um, You know, we have a course, for example, diversity and inclusion and in conflict resolution and development, which is taught by. Um, my, uh, uh, colleague, Carla Capel, who's a former USIP, uh, vice president, um, and, 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 she is doing fantastic, uh, work both in the classroom and outside. If you've seen her recent book, untapped power, leveraging diversity for, uh, conflict and, um, development is something that we should all read. It's a, it's a really great work that's representative of these new efforts that sort of marry academia and practice and bring these these conversation these these two spheres in conversation with one another very very effectively so it's kind of becoming required reading in, in both of our spheres but i mean other courses um you know uh, uh the the bush school of texas AM has managing workplace diversity in public and nonprofit organizations um uh, Jackson School at UW has disability studies theory and global practice etc you know, uh, Pitt and other schools and Harvard, they're all adding courses that speak to these themes that can benefit again that pipeline that, that you're talking about. Um uh you know courses on you know again when when Melanie was making her comments I, I thought about how we influence what you know who and what we teach, you know, in, in the political science sphere and I'm I'm a political scientist for example. Um you know organizations are like like Uh, women also know stuff, right? Which is sort of like talking about women uh, and contributions to political science, writing both theory and practice, or there's another similar organization, people of color also know stuff, right? That we sort of think about, well, you know, why have we been teaching the same stuff over and over and over again for years without sort of criticizing it sufficiently um, in terms of our core curricula? Um, But as I said, that sort of that process of kind of like, you know, we, we are uh, we have resources now that we didn't have before. We have a groundswell of interest, both from students and from organizations, and uh, domestically and internationally. Um, we have we have data that that can clearly demonstrate, you know, the benefits of of inclusion. So we're also teaching the practicalities of inclusion about, you know, for example. Yeah, you know, the, the CFR report showing, uh, you know, about the when women are excluded from peace accords, there's a much greater likelihood of failure. For example, um, why are we, you know, we have we have actual empirics to kind of back this stuff up. Um, you know, the Pathways for Peace report from the UN. Uh, the inc- inclusive approaches to preventing nonviolent conflict. All this stuff we can now bring to bear in the classroom that, again, marry theory and practice in ways that, that show the benefits of inclusion. Um, and, and again, not just for peace building, but for all sort of uh, people-centered institutions. Um, but, but as I said, the, the, the real challenge remains this kind of like what we see as the core uh, and who defines what the kind of co- the, the must knows in our academic settings, whether that's graduate or undergraduate curricula? Um, you know, and, and most of you probably will have seen because it was it was very widely distributed, the foreign policy article um, by uh, Kelly Drogo and uh, Meredith Logan, you know, two years ago in the wake of the, the racial justice movement in this country and globally, why race matters in international relations. Which was really, you know, I mean it was seen as this kind of blockbuster piece, and it was really it's an excellent, excellent piece in foreign policy. Um, but it but it also what what people outside the academy problem might may not know is that those arguments that they simply they marshalled the evidence, but uh scholars have been making those arguments about the sort of the coloniality of of international relations curricula and of uh, you know of, of conflict resolution curricula for years, and, um, and and how we might sort of decolonize these and decenter um, um, U.S. Uh, perspectives in order to benefit you know the the people that we're teaching and the the work that we want to do subsequently, those people want to do subsequently. So, you know, I mean, there's a whole list in it, you know, of of scholars that, that we can bring to bear as part of the core, why not these? Why privilege some voices over others? And those are debates that we're going through now. And 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 I'll just end here just to, to, to say that um you know that curricular reform um is a is a multi-year process, I think as Ariel was suggesting, you know, on, on all of these things. We have to be very, very humble about how fast we can we can affect certain changes. Um, oh, and lastly, just on, on the issue of of uh, climate, you know, as I alluded to this before, I mean, we're trying to, um, uh, you know, bring in uh, uh, different kinds of initiatives. We've tried to expand our um, Pickering, Wrangling, Payne fellows, for example, the community there. We've tried to um, uh, create spaces on campus for um, my colleague Barbara Levine and our Institute for Study of Diplomacy, for example, runs a series on diverse diplomacy to show, you know, future practitioners about there are avenues for you, there are people that look like you, who, who came from similar backgrounds, who, um, who can kind of lay the, uh, the groundwork for you and so on. So, you know, try to provide those kinds of resources for, for our current students is critical. Cool.
2: Thank you, Scott, and thank you for uh, all that expounding on the evolution. Uh, and I think it's interesting, uh, We, uh, several of us talk about uh, Black people or people of color in INGOs and also people in the Global South and in IHOs and in Peacebuilding have always had these conversations. So I think for many people, it began two years ago. For many of us, it's been a life that we've been living and an argument we've been making over and over again. So uh, great to see that there are more people in the conversation now, uh, but I take your point that this is not, it's not new for many people. So uh, I appreciate you uh, mentioning that. Um, and Ariel, uh, Duna began this uh, early when she talked about uh, NPF and that new partnerships initiative, as well as globalization uh, within USAID. Uh, and I wonder if you might, uh, from your vantage Point at the State Department talk about uh, some of the ways that you all are trying to shift practices uh, because the USG is uh, an influential player. So how do you think about how you might help spur along uh, further change for bilateral actors um, and other governments that are seeking to uh, create change? That's
3: a, a, a great question. And I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna put on my professor hat here for a minute um, and say that first and foremost, I think, um, Scott's points are particularly powerful because when we are thinking just about learning and humans and evolution. I think a core um, issue that we face is a limitation of imagination. So my sort of positionality in the work that we are doing as the NSU. And I think within the Bureau is how do we help people imagine or reimagine what they believe to be possible? And so in the context of the classroom, I I have to say that I think what is done in the classroom in terms of learning, imagining, repositioning, and helping people envision something different, something new, it also translates into what we are trying to do in the department and is sort of the threshold task, as I think, as we see it shifting power within a a bureaucracy um, is most definitely a stumbling block but also i think there's an immense amount of opportunity and possibility there again if you center the idea of like it is an amalgam of human beings and we are trying to support said human beings as they begin to reimagine what is possible and so for that being the first step I think within the NSU and within our bureau, we're trying to sort of better understand the what and the why and the how of shifting power first and foremost, and then be in conversation with people within the department, within the interagency, about what it might, what how this might manifest in their work. I think we're very clear around the limitations, quite frankly, um, of our power in 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 a large institution and within the interagency and within the USG. But I think what I have found is that, and what we have found is that people, there's an immense amount of appetite for figuring out what a new how would look like. And so being in continued conversation, figuring out what mechanisms we can use to hold people internally, and I think very kindly, but accountable right, for said shifts, and then um, understanding that there's going to be an inevitable sort of feedback loop. And that iteration is actually quite powerful and important. For example, one of the things that I think has been most exciting for me in my, my tenure here is going to our Foreign Service Institute. And maybe that's because, I, you know, again, I I, I, I missed being a professor. I was last um, at Georgetown School of Government. I was the visiting Mullen seminar professor. And so I saw flip charts, and I got very excited. But anyway, one of the most exciting moments for me Was going to the foreign service institute and giving a short lecture on what it would look like for us to embed equity in our negotiation practices right one of the things that people um sort of get the rudiments of is like okay i think i'm understanding the basics of, of what a negotiation might entail but then how do i take it a step further and hearing people's questions, noting their curiosity, framing it as a dialectic was a um, really exciting moment for me because what it did was it broke down this idea of sort of like uh, a system of people and said, so it's just, it's an individuals, it's people, curious people, people who wanna learn. And so I think that can feel um, not particularly satisfying when we're thinking systemic, but I think it's important for us to remember that I think we're most powerful when we're operating at that nodal point of the systemic and the interpersonal, because they all feed up. And so for me and for the NSU, I think the way that we've been thinking about it kids, what do we do and how do we share what we do and work at that overlay, that nodal point between the systemic and the interpersonal.
2: Thank you. Um, I have several more questions, but I, we have about eight more minutes and I want to get some audience questions. Um, and so I'm going to ask if you all can be, like, these are complex issues, but I'm going to ask can you can be a little briefer in your our Q&A response. And not lightning round, but sort of lightning round is what I'm going to uh, ask for. Um, and the first question uh, that I'm going to ask comes, uh, it's, it sounds like it's for Ariel. Um, how can U.S. government policymakers combat supremacy culture in crafting and implementing foreign policy? Uh, and where has this been most difficult?
3: I mean, it's a really powerful question and it would be foolish of me to suggest that I had the answer. <laughs> I don't, but what I will say is that, you know, as a, as, as sort of someone that, that, that straddles multiple professional worlds, I will say that one of the things that I've come to really appreciate is that, that each system has a currency of the realm. And within the USG, one of the currencies of the realm, even though they, it can feel sort of mundane, is like, what's the framework I, I, we, we had this conversation alluded to before and, and how that is we can problematize that in and of itself, but I think that you know a, a more generous interpretation of a request for a framework or a, se- a series of questions to ask or sort of the, the how is that people want to be able to do a lot of this work, but there are a lot of other things that can potentially distract sort of the urgency of the moment. And so being able to turn to sort of the core framework can be immensely helpful. And what I will say is a lot of my colleagues within this building have spent a lot of time developing very specific frameworks by which we might think about gender analysis and conflict. Right, for which we might think about gender or racial equity and embedding racial equity in all that we do. One of the first CEOs signed by the Biden administration was around racial equity. And I'm really heartened to say that within this building and within the USG, people have sort of put their 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 time where their passions are and created frameworks whereby we can say, are we are we walking the walk? Are we doing what we said we were going to do? And so I think that is the beginning, just the beginning. But to me, I think indicative of, of, of a potential sort of how we begin to do this is like, what's the currency of the realm that you're in how are you gonna frame your message and your work in ways that the humans that you're engaging with can receive? And in the context of the USG, it's, a, it's an executive order, it's a framework, it's an interagency process. And I will say that all of those things, I have seen them manifest in an attempt to sort of advance the work that we're talking about here. So it's a really, I think, very heartening and exciting time to be within the US government and thinking about these issues.
2: And I appreciate how you put that in like, there are nuts and bolts pieces of this. There are some uh, things that are more macro level and philosophical, but there actually are practical things that we can look to when we're trying to figure this out. So uh, that's an important point. Um, This next question is about localization. Uh, And how do localization practices support JDEI in peace building? And does mentorship, does the mentorship role contribute to the supremacy of Western voices over local voices? Uh, and do donors listen more to Western voices than to non-Western voices? Um, so uh, Melanie, I'm going to turn that to you first, and then I'm going to go to Dina.
5: So could you repeat one part of that, Candee? Does mentorship lead to, what was that question?
2: Does, mentorship, does the mentorship role contribute to the supremacy of Western uh, voices?
5: So this is a very complicated set of questions, but thank you. I think um, I, I really resonate with what you said, Ariel, about imagination. Because so I think a lot of what we need to think about as donors working with local communities and local actors is how are we reimagining a future where the whole global system is more oriented towards the needs of local actors? And recognizing that pieces will not happen through local ownership alone but that peace will not be sustainable if we don't have that local engagement. So how are we imagining very new kinds of relationships between local communities, their own governments, the larger global system? How are we reimagining what local means? There are many, many locals. Um, And I think we even within local peace building tend to think about a kind of stereotypical, what does a local NGO look like? How are we thinking about a whole range of actors um, and so I think we're all going to have to feel our way along together and that this whole idea of mentorship, what are these actual personal connections we're making that might change the system to think maybe maybe my mentor is somebody who's 30 years younger and lives in South Sudan. Like maybe I'm not the mentor. Like how are we flipping this idea of who's teaching whom, who's leading whom? It's only through those different reimagined relationships that we're going to come to real sustained local peace building.
2: Thank you,
0: I I love that framing. Dina, can I have you Yeah, Yeah, I think uh, those are hard questions, great questions, thank you you for them. Um, I do think there is a chance that localization can be, uh, the concepts and the intent behind it can be derailed by the structures that want to retain the business as usual approach and we have to challenge ourselves every day. There's no reason to assume that a mentor is a a Western person. I the vast majority of cases that I'm aware of, which are a little bit outside of peace building, but in graduation models and in mother child care groups, the mentors are always from the community, um, respected individuals who are often so selected by the, the communities themselves or the individuals. And In the case of the youth program, you know, asking youth to identify who they most admire, who they most respect, who they wanna engage with. So we can um, imagine mentorship, I think, in a way that doesn't um, contribute to that, but it is something we have to constantly check, as I, I, I think, um, yeah, it all depends, I guess is probably the, the answer. <laughs>
2: Thanks. Thank you. Uh, there are many more questions, but we are actually at time. Um, so I'm going to of uh, respect for each of you and your time. I'm going to uh, close us out. Uh, but I just want to, uh, uh, Ariel, you mentioned kind and accountable for shifts. And I just want to like, linger on that because I think that that's an important thing for all of us who are uh, both activists and institutionalists. So how do we begin to shift institutions? We have to actually be intentional about them, and, but we have to also realize that these things take effort and they take time. Uh, so we have to be kind to the folks who are, who are trying to push, but we also have to hold them accountable so I really appreciate you uh, using that frame uh, and I'm gonna hold on to that uh, as somebody who's constantly asking questions about these things that um, there's 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 a lot of work to do here. Um, and so, uh, Ariel, Scott, Melanie, Dina, thank you so much uh, for your insights and for your time today. Um, and to uh, Sani, uh, Kai at USIP, uh, and the folks at Search for Common Ground, Mercy Corps, WCAPS, uh, who've been our partners along this journey. Thank you all. And we look forward to many more of these conversations, uh, and uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll see you soon. In another thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much. Thank Bye-bye.
0: you. Thank you for listening to this event.